Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books and Public Policy. I'm Jeff Bloodworth, the host of the channel. Today, we're going to be talking to Tim Lombardo about his wonderful new book, Blue Collar Conservatism, Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia and Populist Politics. Uh, Tim, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Why don't we begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, first, Jeff, thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Tim Lombardo. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of South Alabama. I've been here since um, August of 2015, so I'm starting my fourth year here uh, uh, at this school. Um, And I've, before that, I kind of hopped around uh, a number of different places throughout the Midwest. Uh, I did my doctorate at Purdue University, which I finished in 2013. And the book is a, a extended revision of my dissertation from Purdue. Uh, but I'm born and raised in Philadelphia, uh, which uh, will become <laughs> obvious over the course of this conversation. And uh, it helps explain a lot of how I ended up writing this book, is that I, I am a Philadelphia native. Um, I grew up in the city. Uh, I grew up, I was schooled in the city. I, my bachelor's and master's degree are, are from Temple University. Um, and so I am, uh, in addition to my scholarly interests in, in the city, I am also uh, a, a, a native of it and committed to it in, in a lot of different ways. Well, excellent. Um, what I really appreciate that about this book is, um, yeah, I'm a specialist in American liberalism. We think about sort of public policy and the ascent and then demise of liberalism. You know, generally we folks, um, you know, you know, study the 1960s as far as liberalism is concerned. And then they get to the 1980s and it's all about modern or contemporary conservatism. And the 70s are sort of like the ugly stepchild that's that's left out, which is a crucial part of the story. And, and what is appreciated about this book is, you know, we obviously get the, the, the pretext to, you know, Frank Rizzo's rise um, and, and the pretext to 1970s Philadelphia, but it kind of fills in this kind of gap, you know, what was going on politically in urban America during the 1970s. So, I mean, you're from Philadelphia, as you say. So we, I think we understand how you kind of stumbled into this topic about this really important uh, figure. Um, but you want to talk a little bit more about you know, what, what attracted you to Frank Rizzo and tell, you know, the listeners a little bit about Rizzo and his background? Sure. Uh, let me first, how I stumbled into the project. As I mentioned, it was originally my dissertation and it has grown uh, considerably since then. Um, I didn't ever set out to write a dissertation on my hometown. Um, that wasn't my goal. Uh, where it really came from was the last seminar I took before I took my exams, before I started working in earnest on a dissertation. And at the time, I had a completely uh, different topic. Hmm. But the last seminar I took uh, was on um, the literature of modern conservatism, uh, the recent history. And, and we were reading hmm. um, excellent books, all the books from like the, the last decade. Uh, I'm thinking um, Kevin Cruz, Matthew Lassiter, um, uh, Robert Self, um, a bunch of others um, that, that really sort of field-defining books. Uh, um, suburban Suburban Warriors. I can't remember her name, but, but really field-defining books. Really shaping, really overcoming a lot of you know really early attempts at chronicling uh, uh, conservative ascendancy in America, and they were excellent. 
but of all, almost all of them, uh, and all of the ones I just uh, mentioned, uh, were focused on southern communities um, and especially western communities, and especially the suburbs. And as as interesting as the seminar was, I couldn't help thinking that there was something else very much missing. And the more I thought about what was missing, I started thinking about where I'm from uh, and the neighborhoods I grew up in. And one thing led to another, and I and I came back to Frank Rizzo. Frank Rizzo, I, I should point out, I'm from Philadelphia, uh, but I this most of the story in the book takes place before I was born. Uh, I was born uh, two years before Frank Rizzo left office, and I, I was 12 years old when he died. So was, mm. I wasn't really there for any of this. Um, but you can't grow up without in Philadelphia without knowing who Frank Rizzo is. He sort of looms or was looms very large over the city. And um, he's you either people either love him or hate him. Uh, it's really hard to find a middle ground on Frank Rizzo because he was a very controversial figure. He was um, he started out as a police officer. As I, as I write in the book, he actually uh, dropped out of high school and followed his father's footsteps into the Philadelphia Police Department. And he earned a reputation as a particularly aggressive young police officer. Some of his, uh, in the back into the 1950s, when he was just getting a start, his, he started building a reputation for um, busting illicit coffee houses in Center City, Philadelphia, one of his first assignments where uh he, he earned a reputation. These were known hangouts for um, gay men and, and for, you know, hipsters in the beat generation. And he was, you know, cleaning up Center City. Uh, and eventually he would be moved to to West Philadelphia and different areas until he rose rapidly through the ranks of uh, of the Philadelphia Police Department, becoming uh, um, deputy commissioner. Uh, Deputy Commissioner for uh, Uniformed Forces in 1963, um, Acting Commissioner of the Philadelphia Police Department in, in 1967, and eventually and eventually appointed to Police Commissioner. Um, from there, he earned a national reputation um, because he was uh, the, the phrase he was so often <laughs> he enjoyed saying was uh, uh, "scapa o capo." He was uh, of Italian descent um, and often talked about his Italian heritage. And he, he translated this phrase to crack their heads. That was the way you dealt with criminals. He was uh, vigorous in his prosecution of the Black Panthers, of anti-war demonstrators, of uh, any civil rights activism. Uh, and, you know, he used all of that as sort of, you know, this is late 1960s, early 1970s, he became sort of a, a hero to the, especially the white ethnic, the blue collar whites that I, fo- I focus on in the book, um, who were calling for law and order. Um, this is, you know, Barry Goldwater ran on law and order, Nixon ran on law and order, George Wallace ran on law and order. Uh, Rizzo did it locally, and, and in a sense, far more successfully. Um, because of his experience in the police department, he runs for mayor, in 1971 uh, and wins what is a, still a very close election, but he wins promising law and order, promising to clean up the Philadelphia, and he wins as a Democrat. Uh, Philadelphia from the 1950, well, Philadelphia has not elected a Republican since 1947 or 1948, excuse mm-hmm. me. 
Um, he is a Democrat. Um, he was a lifelong Republican, and he would end up later in his life switching back to Republican, but he was a Democrat, but he represented sort of the more conservative side of the Democratic Party in the 1970s, uh, especially mm -hmm. in a lot of these urban places. Uh, and that's who we appealed to, um, largely disaffected Democrats in the 1960s who, who looked to him um, both as, you know, this, this law and order guy who was going to clean up crime, uh, deal with protesters and all that, but also this guy who was like they were. You know, he dropped out of high school. He worked his way up. Uh, he, he found his way. Um, he, no one gave him anything, or is how they, how they would say it, all right? Um, no one gave him any special privileges. And he used that. And that, those were his politics. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to everything else, his politics were very much involved. In, no one did anything for you and me, speaking about uh, white ethnics, speaking about white people. No one did anything for you and me. Everyone else wants, is getting special privileges. And he, he used that for two terms of mayor in the 1970s. And I guess that's as succinctly as I can put it. Yeah. Now, he, if, if Rizzo didn't exist, a Hollywood movie executive would, would create him. I mean, just um, larger than life. Um, I mean, it's so what I appreciate about the book is that there are some things or many things that are somewhat familiar about the, the typical narrative of, you know, of liberal, the history of liberalism in the 1960s, um, you know, backlash politics, the rise of, of white ethnics. But there are also significant things that that are, even if they're familiar, they're cast in a new light. Um, so you you make Rizzo kind of a, a representative figure of a, of a new kind of what you call blue collar conservatism. I mean, and you call Rizzo an archetypal white ethnic populist. And so do you want to talk a little bit about sort of like what, what that means? So sort of this um, revolt of white ethnics against the Democratic Party or li I guess liberal orthodoxy in the North? Sure. So one of the main things I wanted to do is sort of uh, complicate the, the sort of backlash narrative that is so familiar. It, a lot of the authors I talked about from the past decade did the very same thing for conservatism as a whole. But you still have this sort of um, this this view of the white working class, especially in the north, uh, as sort of angry and and uh, reactionary to a lot of things that were going on. And, and as, I, as I make clear in the book, there are parts of that narrative that are 100% true, and I don't shy away from them, but it is, it is a broad brush. It is, it is very sort of, uh, it's, it's a little simplistic. And so what I wanted to do is add some nuance. And where I found a lot of this nuance was uh, in the letters people wrote to Frank Rizzo. People wrote to Frank Rizzo constantly, uh, especially when he was mayor. Um, oh, they were fantastic. And they were completely, as far as I know, untouched. Most people, I mean, uh, you know, not to get too far in the weeds here, but Philadelphia City Archives, where I found a lot of this stuff is, it's a municipal archive. It's not the easiest place to do research. Uh, but it, 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 there was just a trove of people's letters to him. And what struck me was that they didn't write to him like he was a politician. They wrote to him like he was a friend. Hey Frank, like, like not Mr. Mayor, dear Frank. Hey Frank, remember remember this, and and there are all these little personal anecdotes. Um, and and, and I, the thing is, I I had been through another mayor's letters and a couple other mayors and other people's letters. No, they didn't talk to them the way they talked to Frank Rizzo. 
And, and that's and and what what really sort of encapsulates that that attitude is the anecdote I actually opened the book with, which remains one of my favorites, uh, where Frank Rizzo is on this campaign stop, his first campaign for mayor, and he stops in this little bar in South Philadelphia, raises a toast to the to the people in the bar. And a reporter who's been following him around sticks around and he talks to people, asks, you know, what is it you like about him? And a guy said, the guy says, uh, he isn't a PhD. You know, Rizzo came up the hard way. Rizzo's one of us. And that is what I find to be really important about his appeal. There is that backlash side. There's no doubt about that, that, that Rizzo is going to do something about all of these about the protesters, about the people who are complaining, about the people who are about uh, about uh, the civil rights stuff. He's going to do something, but, but there's this other side that he's he's one of them, and it matters that he has that that he comes from a South Philadelphia neighborhood, uh, and that he grew up in the in those same streets, and and that's where I find his populist politics. His populism really comes from his ability, his genuine ability to relate to these uh, to these white ethnics, to these working class people, to these middle class people as well, who see themselves as going through very, very difficult, a very difficult era, the, the sort of era of the urban crisis. No, it's, it's an interesting. I mean, the, the, if one of the definitions of populism is, you know, people who believe that elites are not working for their interests, you know, Rizzo is one of them and is inherently, right, as one of them, as a tribune of these people, will look out for their interests. Um, So you talk about the backlash narrative. And so do you want to talk about how your work goes beyond the back? Because I think you're totally correct, right? A lot of the backlash narrative is totally correct. But it, 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 you know, it, it's incomplete. Do you want to talk about how your work goes beyond the backlash narrative? Well, I think I think you said it right. It's it, it's not wrong. It's incomplete. And and the, you know, part of it is just the word backlash itself. You, you hear that, and you 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 get the wrong impression. Um, I, I try to sort of not even I don't I don't even want to go as far as to say argue against it, but complicate it by. Um, Looking what's beneath it. Uh, what what are how are they framing their uh, their their complaints? How are they um, how are they addressing these issues? So so the big the, the four big uh, narrative arcs that that weave their way through the book are the politics of law enforcement, um, housing, education, and employment. And, and they sort of make the argument that if you're looking at urban America in the 1960s, if you look at an urban America almost any time, but especially in the 60s and 70s, you can't separate these. You can't separate somebody's houses from the school they're, they're, they're sending their kids to. You can't send, a, you can't separate somebody's neighborhood uh, from the issue of crime. Um, you can't separate uh, any of these things. Uh, they're, they're too, they're too intimate, really intimate related. Um, and what I want to find, what I want to do is, okay, we know they're upset. We know they're angry. We've had people tell us that, but how are they expressing? You know, uh, how are they? How are they looking at it? And and how is it that Rizzo becomes the answer to it? And so I look. For, what I tried to do was look for the way these things were. These these politics were not only interwoven, uh, but built upon each other uh, to 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 so to sort of show how how the, the backlash narrative um, kind of. The backlash narrative dehumanizes 
in a sense. Um, and whether whether you agree with their activism, you agree with their politics, and is, is a different story altogether. But the way they're approaching it is is a little more is a lot more nuanced. That um, the way they see things, right or wrong, is that um, they're in a fight for limited resources. Uh, limited resources that are available from the city, uh, from the federal government, from a, from a number of other places, and that each gain that primarily African Americans make uh, through civil rights activism is their loss, and and that and they view it through that. And right or wrong, there is uh, they they see this in a, not just they see this in part in terms of. Uh, racial resentment, and, and I cover that a lot in the book. But there is also this feeling of economic insecurity, this feeling that they're on the losing end of what is essentially a zero-sum game for essentially liberal resources. Uh, and I think that part of the of is is often left out of the backlash narrative. The backlash narrative doesn't see they're they're still somewhat fighting. Um, for the for liberal programs, just so long as they're aimed towards them and not the wrong type of people. Yeah, I mean, what the seventies were often called the age of limits, <laughs> and in a, in, an era where there's you know incomes are not expanding, tax bases are not expanding um, in the ways that they had been in the past. I mean, these folks seemingly are being rational actors in a certain sense of fighting for programs that they see that belong to them. I mean, so this is, you, you know, I like how you talk about there are different kinds of conservatisms. And so in the midst of the urban crisis, and maybe you could say what exactly the urban crisis, what you mean by that, there is this new conservatism that you call blue collar conservatism, maybe kind of talk about those things in tandem. So go back to what you just said about the seventies being the age of limits. And that's absolutely right. Uh, that is exacerbated in urban areas, uh, and, and you know the, the the urban crisis has several different different definitions depending on who you ask. Um, I sort of there are so many elements to it, but it, it begins with 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 dis disinvestment, and these are all interrelated, all compounding each other. Inter, um, disinvestment, you have white flight to the suburbs. Um, and in the 60s, you have the, the waves of urban rioting, of which Philadelphia is not immune. Um, one of the chapters deals heavily with the um, so-called Columbia Avenue riot in 1964. Uh, and it's just a signal that, that cities are the new site of unrest in the United States, the, especially as you get into the later 60s. Um, as the civil rights movement, the, 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 a lot of the, the more active parts of the civil rights movement, especially when you look at the, the rise of black power, is far more urban uh, than, than a lot of what is typically thought of uh, in the sort of classic narrative of civil rights. Um, and then you get to the 70s. And um, not, not only does, you know, the city, the era go this era of limits, uh, but city uh, disinvestment uh, compounds um, industrial flight, uh, especially if you look at the cities like Philadelphia, where you look at Pittsburgh, you look at Cleveland, you look at the, the emerging Rust Belt, all of these industries uh, moving to the south or moving overseas. Um, very famously, you know, uh, the, the, the headline um, from the mid-70s, uh, Ford to New York dropped dead. You know, cities are... are that are facing that age of limits 
um, more so, more so than a lot of other areas. And um, the blue collar whites that I am that I'm looking at are living through this, and they're play, and a lot of times they are placing the blame on people of color. They're placing the blame on, on, on civil rights. And that's, you know, rather than take the, you know, a step back and see some of the broader forces, the broader changes in capital production, a lot of things that are, that are doing these things, they see it, uh, they see it at a real ground level. Oh, it's, it's this person who is trying to move into my neighborhood. It's this person who uh, yeah, is, is uh, using affirmative action programs to, to, to take a job. And, and, and that, that does lead to a lot of anger, uh, and and you know as much as and I, I'll be clear as much as I am complicating the backlash narrative, it's still there. That's still a part of this. I mean, Rizzo is clearly <laughs> that figure, um, but this the anxiety that is produced by the urban crisis uh, that is the context for for which all that happens, and, and you get a lot more. Um, I think uh, not only more nuanced, but also clearer sense of what caused these people to uh, to seek out or, or to to look to someone like a Frank Rizzo or as they would later to a Ronald Reagan um, to, because of the, the these broad array of urban politics and new policies that they saw themselves if not the victims of at least the on the losing end of, you know, and, and I, I, for the most part, try to let them speak for themselves throughout the book. I do, you know, I'm a historian and I think it is my job to correct them when they were, you know, there, sometimes there's, they, they had a lot of misapprehensions about how programs like affirmative action, especially, or school desegregation, or a lot of these things were going to work. Um, but I think it's important to understand how they saw things, to understand how um, the shift in their politics happened. Yeah, no, it's um, it, it's interesting because if we think about um, cities today and even a place like Philadelphia, which still has uh, significant, I think, a, a, a crime that's above the national average. At the same time, I mean, our, our large urban centers are so much safer and cleaner in a way that makes like the 60s and 70s almost unrecognizable. <laughs> um, when you try to teach about urban riots of the 60s uh, to students and it, 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 you're almost talking about a, a foreign country in some ways. So do you want to talk about how... Um, um, the urban riots of the 1960s, I mean, you not, you do this nicely where you set the stage about kind of this municipal liberal consensus and how it breaks down, in, not just in Philadelphia, but elsewhere. In Philadelphia, you see it, you know, the, 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 the metaphor or the event that where you can see it breaking down is 1964. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Um, kind of the, the municipal liberal consensus and then the, the the urban riots in Philadelphia and rising crime, which kind of helps elevate Rizzo into, you know, uh, you know, the, the city's most important figure. Yeah, sure. And, 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 and one of the things you touched upon there is that is that Philadelphia awards me a really interesting case study. Um, the the to have a character like Rizzo. Um, let's just be sometimes it's fun to write about a guy like him. Uh, you know, gives me a good anchor for this story. But it, this is not a story that just happens in Philadelphia. A lot of cities went through very, very similar things, uh, especially in the urban north. 
Um, and But Philadelphia offers this opportunity to really look at things at a grassroots level. And, and I begin the, the narrative in the 1950s. Um, for for oh, close to a century before the 1950s, Philadelphia had been uh, ruled by a, a incredibly corrupt Republican machine. I mean, machine politics from like early 20th century. Um, think uh, Lincoln Steffens, uh, shame the cities. This is the same machine that Lincoln Steffens was complaining about uh, in the early 20th century was still with some changes ruling Philadelphia by the in the 1940s. Uh, and this, this group of business minded um, Democrats um, come together with the idea that they just that the city shouldn't run this way, that this is a bad way for the, sun, the, the city to run. And, and it's a big reform movement. Some historians have, have likened this to basically the progressive era coming to Philadelphia um, 40 years late. You know, so, so that the reforms of the progressive era kind of skipped Philadelphia and missed them until the 50s. And that's true in a lot of sense. But there but one thing that that is um, very important to this, what I what I call in the book, this municipal liberal consensus, which was that, that is never as uh, can, any kind of consensus is never really a consensus, is that the, the reformers in Philadelphia had a nearly unprecedented commitment uh, to civil rights. Uh, Philadelphia did more to encourage civil rights policymaking in the city um, than you'll really find almost anywhere. And, and the linchpin of that uh, was the creation of the, the uh, not only the, a new city charter, uh, but the Commission on Human Rights. The uh, Philadelphia Mayor uh, uh, Clark recruits um, uh, well-known civil rights leaders uh, from around the country to come work for this to, to the idea being that they can mediate these issues before they, they start. And they have some success in the, in the 1950s, uh, mediating, um, you know, the first African-American family to move into this neighborhood in, near, in Kensington, the Kensington area of Philadelphia. Uh, and they mediate that conflict uh, and they brag that they stopped a race riot. Right. And, and so the, these, these Philadelphia liberals sort of, they get this idea that they fix, they're fixing things. Now, this community, their, their, their new city charter, their commitment to civil rights, that they're fixing things. That, you know, and they, they kind of ignore a lot of the other things that they do, that they're doing. And, and in a lot of sense, that especially that comes to urban renewal and that comes to housing. Um, uh, Philadelphia is, while I say it's very, very representative of other places, it's also very unique. In that, in the 1950s, um, Philadelphia had something very few cities of its size had, and that was space to grow. Um, Philadelphia has, and if you look at a map of the city of Philadelphia, there, I mean, jutting off to the right of the Delaware River is Northeast Philadelphia, and parts of Northeast Philadelphia in the 1950s were more farmland than they were residential. Still, in the 20th century. Uh, and it was not only a place to help relocate um, factories, you know, think the old tenement cell factories that you would find in the early 20th century that were run down and, and not entirely safe. And, you know, they, here they could build one floor huge factories because they had plenty of room. Not only that, it became the site of new tract housing developments. Uh, all of these things, like um, almost more akin to suburban areas than you would find in the city. Um, the other side of that is that it was entirely segregated. 
Um, and despite the creation of the Commission on, uh, on Human Relations, despite the, the commitment to civil rights, there was very little the city was willing to could or really could do to fight the problem of segregated neighborhoods. Um, and the place that affected more than any other was North Philadelphia. North Philadelphia had seen sort of the worst, the, the, the worst lead up to the urban crisis was in, in North Philadelphia. It had experienced a massive influx of Southern African-Americans during the Great Migration, really, uh, even especially after World War II. Uh, and they had no, there was no outlet. Uh, the jobs were leaving. Uh, whites were either leave going to the suburbs or going to Northeast Philadelphia, and and North Philadelphia was left as a cauldron for for so to speak, and it uh, exploded in August of 1964. Um, as as in scenes that were eerily similar to what you found in that same year in Rochester, New York, or in Harlem, or a few years later in Watts, or in Detroit, or in Newark. It, it, they all start the same way. A relatively small police incident, um, but because of because of you know the problems of policing in the, in the in the mid 20th century, these were these this was an over policed area. This was places where patrols were uh, uh, were uh, where people didn't see the police as as protectors, uh, and and this it was really quick for rumors to spread throughout North Philadelphia and. For three days, Philadelphia's uh, Philadelphia rioted. Uh, the reaction, and that's or North Philadelphia, you know, the, these urban uprisings. Um, the reaction to it is where my people come in. Um, I look at look at this. So so when the when the Columbia Avenue riot took place in, in 1964, the Philadelphia Police Commissioner was a guy named Howard Leary, who um, you know, by law enforcement standards, was liberal. Um, he believed in building um, uh, police community uh, relations and and attempting to reach out to civil rights leaders and trying to create these dialogues between the police and the uh, and the communities. Um, Philadelphia in in the '60s has this very very fiery civil rights leader, head of the NAACP, named Cecil B. Moore, and Cecil B. Moore referred to Howard Leary as the most enlightened policeman in America, right? Just to give you an idea. And, and his idea of dealing with the uprising was to not make, you know, don't let police fire upon people. Um, they have clubs in case, you know, things get really out of hand, but really it was, it was his, for lack of a better word, his, his approach to it was to, quit, uh, to create a quarantine. Don't let it get beyond this area, but otherwise let it fill, fizzle out on its own. And to a lot of people, that seemed like capitulating, capitulating to crime. Uh, Frank Rizzo himself was actually on the scene at the Columbia Avenue riot. Uh, and I only touch on this in the book because I try to focus on the people who were reacting to it. Uh, but he was livid. He was, he was just... Uh, he, he actually never fully forgave Howard Leary for not letting the police go in there and, as he would have done, just crack people's heads. He never forgave him for that. Uh, and so as he sort of started building his, his career, he built him, his police career as the polar opposite of Howard Leary. Howard Leary was an educated 
policeman. Uh, he knew he knew pr- procedure. He knew all of these things, and he was going to build these complete community relations. And Frank Rizzo was just going to bust some heads. And that's the that's the image he created. That's the and to to these to these people in in segregated neighborhoods. Um, the the area of North Philadelphia that that experienced this was over 90% African-American, whereas like Northeast Philadelphia was over 90% white. They're only seeing this in the news. They're only seeing this, reading this in the paper. Well, what they're seeing in the years later as Rizzo's making his rise, these things aren't happening anymore. So in in 1967, when Detroit is, uh, Detroit riots, uh, Newark riots, uh, Philly doesn't. And rightly or wrongly, a lot of people credit Frank Rizzo for that. Frank Rizzo was, was acting police, police commissioner uh, during, during the long, hot summer of 1967. His methods kept the city safe. That's not entirely true. It, it, it completely ignored the efforts of African-American communities, of African-American clergy to, to uh, do a lot of things to settle these areas. But if you take a step back and you look at the and you know, look at it from their perspective, what they're seeing is Frank Rizzo did, and that's Frank Rizzo becomes at least in the in the arena of crime and, and law enforcement, Frank Rizzo is the solution to the urban crisis. Yeah, so blue collar conservatism, kind of, it seems to me, and, and it is the linchpin to this is the the politics of law and order, and it. it by the time you get to the late 1960s, right, rise, re, you know, crime rates are really rising, uh, burgeoning. Urban riots are, you know, in every major American city, in medium and minor American cities. So you throw on top of that the youth revolt. Um, and so obviously, you know, law and order becomes a very important issue, maybe the important issue, maybe even more important than Vietnam um, to kind of white ethnic America and beyond. And so this is where you talk about, use this term, you know, the, the triumphant politics of law and order. Do you want to explain what you mean by that? You know, if you, uh, if, to, just to, to frame this a little bit, um, you know, the, the 70s are often looked at as this oh, real, really hard time, especially for working class uh, uh, for working class whites. And if you read um, uh, Jeff Cowie, Jefferson Cowie's excellent book, um, um, Last Days of the Working Class. What is it? Like, uh, stay alive. Stay alive. Why couldn't I? Stay alive. You read that, you know, you know, and you, you get this. This is a real period of, of, of downtrodden white working class. And that's true. I'm not arguing against it. But, but what Rizzo really represents is a triumph for them, especially so to go back to what I was saying earlier about him being one of us. Um, for 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 this you know high school dropout grew up in a row home in South Philadelphia to be mayor this was a triumph and and I think a lot of sometimes that's missed in the in the uh, sort of the declension narrative of the white working class of the seventies is that there are at least on some levels and and especially in Philadelphia on a local level um, at least fleeting triumphs or vicarious triumphs. And nowhere do I think we see this more, uh, than in sports. Um, and, and if you, if you follow sports at all, and, and if, even to, to this day, it is really not uncommon to hear 
people refer to Philadelphia sports teams, Philadelphia sports fans, and the city itself as a as a as blue collar. Uh, and it's it's sort of one of those things that is just taken for granted without people really delving into it. But that reputation really takes root in the 1970s, precisely at the moment that what you would think of as traditionally blue collar jobs are disappearing. Uh, if you look at traditionally blue collar jobs like construction work, really, really big in the 1960s, begins to decline in the 1970s. Manufacturing in Philadelphia had been in decline since the 50s, but is even going down, it exasperated in the, into the 1970s. And it's be, being replaced as it is throughout uh, urban America with service sector, se- sector uh, pharmaceutical industry becomes really big in Philadelphia. So where does this blue collar image come from? And it really comes through uh, the embrace, not only people like Frank Rizzo, but also um, teams like the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, if if people are not familiar with the Flyers in the 1970s, they are one of the more colorful uh, sports teams uh, of, of that particular era. So, the, the Philadelphia Flyers were founded in 1967, and they struggled for a few years to, to really make a name for themselves. But in the 1970s, they recruited a number of, of very young players, Bobby Clark, uh, Bernie Parent, uh, uh, that played with a sort of special intensity. And hockey is already a fairly violent game, uh, but they played... Uh, just even more so, amp everything up. And they, so much so that they earned themselves uh, the nickname, the Broad Street Bullies. Uh, Broad Street is one of the main thoroughfares in Philadelphia and where the uh, the stadium that the Flyers played in was located. And this team, uh, this was, this was a blue collar team for a blue collar for a blue collar fans. That's how, that's how people framed it. And, and what did it mean to be blue collar? Oh, these are, Professional athletes, you know, it's before the the rise in uh, professional athlete salaries, but they're still relatively well paid for what they're doing. Um, they earn this reputation because of the way they play. They play uh, ferociously. There's there's a there's an essence of. I mean, not only is it an all male sport, but this is a, a hyper masculine uh, violence. And if you look at hockey. In the 1970s, it is almost entirely white. So we have white masculine aggression um, playing the, in this in this uh, this way, and they become sort of a symbol for the city. And it doesn't hurt that they win the Stanley Cups a couple of years running uh, for two years. Uh, and you know, this is a triumph for for all these people who identify and a lot of what I write about in the book is blue collar identity and identifying with these working class neighborhoods, working class roots. This was a team that represented them the same way Rizzo did when he became mayor. This was a team that was doing things. How to, how to, the, you know, Rizzo came up the hard way. The Flyers won the hard way. They won by playing ferociously, you know, and they, not only did they win, they won the championship though. And so this is, as I argue, a vicarious triumph for blue-collar Philadelphia, for blue-collar white ethnics who, who persevered through the 60s when they felt that they were on the, the losing end of everything. Now they're beginning to get these vicarious triumphs. And put into that mix, despite the fact that he's a fictional character, Rocky Balboa does the same thing. 
and and um, to to you know that hasn't that hasn't stopped in Philadelphia um, to this day. <laughs> just a side note. To this day, every single Eagles game begins with the scene from Rocky Two where uh, Adrian comes out of a coma and says, "Do one thing for me, win." Every single Eagles game starts with that scene, and then the you know the rising music. It really, it actually kind of is. <laughs> um, but the the original movie, it, you know, you forget the sequels where Rocky turns into some sort of a strange superhero. The original movie, he's uh, down on his luck. Um, he's not. There's he has no reason to be fighting for the championship. He's picked from obscurity, from this this tiny little gym that, that is you know somewhere in the middle of Kensington. Uh, Look at what the city looks like in, in the original Rocky movie. You know, and you see it when 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 Rocky runs through the city in his old sweatsuit. You know, and he runs. Uh, truth be told, anyone who's ever the, Rocky either ran an enormous amount that day, or uh, because there's no way you get from the Italian market to to the art museum during the the, the route he went. That's just, geographically that wasn't possible. But if you put that under the social context of the mid-1970s, it is uh, – Apollo Creed is absolutely Muhammad Ali. I mean, like, there, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, and you put this into the, the context of the mid-70s, you put it in the context of affirmative action, or you put it in the context of, of all of, of the so-called white ethnic revival. And, and what does Rocky represent? Uh, the – Working class, blue collar, white ethnic. He fights under the name Italian Stallion. Um, who loses? He loses in the original, but nevertheless gives the champion the fight of his life. And and the the, the social context is, you know, white ethnic, blue collar fighting back. Uh, they're 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 down, but they're not out. You know, and then. These are like, like I said, with the Broad Street Bullies, with Rocky, with and even with Rizzo. These are vicarious triumphs uh, for blue-collar whites in the city who thought that they had long been losing. And that's it's it's a broader sense of this it, where where it's not just uh, you know politics, but also in a sense really starts recreating the city's identity or civic identity. Hmm. I mean, the first Rocky is in many ways uh, like a serious oh, movie. Incredibly, <laughs> yeah, incredibly. It's, yeah, yeah. It's and it's a fantastic movie. They get oh yes. cartoonish as they and as they go on, but the the original one is is Oscar. I think it did win Best Picture. In fact, didn't it? I you know it, it sure should have. Yeah. You know it, it's just yeah. I mean it's it's um my wife. I watched it on an airplane recently. My wife just wouldn't even watch it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. This is like a real movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, right. Uh, no. Uh, it's so it's it's interesting. At the very point in which Rizzo was elected mayor, um, you know, you you have symbolic uh, achievements of the flyers and Rocky at the same time you, you call especially Rizzo's victory, the last gasp rather than a sign of blue collar ascendancy. Um, do you want to, you want to talk about that? How, you know, Rizzo's being elected um, is not a sign of, of victory, um, but a, but a last gasp for a dying order. 
you know, there's a there's a, there's a couple of brief victories. You know, um, there's there's the vicarious victories, and you know, Rizzo throws his uh, his weight around and throws his his clout around um, to to help some blue collar whites and some some of the bigger fights they've been engaging in uh, for a while now. Especially when it, uh, this the one of the centerpieces of this is this. Uh, effort to build a public housing complex in a white working class neighborhood in South Philadelphia and effort to put uh, public housing in Northeast Philadelphia, which had long been uh, uh, segregated and, and, and uh, you know, more upwardly mobile. Rizzo, Rizzo in power helps at least temporarily um, put those things to rest. And then, you know, that, that, that looks like not only did he was he able to stop the rioting in the 1960s, he's also able to uh, stop these other things we don't want. Um, but at the end of the day, Rizzo, the, the, the triumph that Rizzo's offering is more cultural and the very real economic factors that sort of were always a part of these blue collar politics, uh, Rizzo's cultural and, and local clout can't do things about the broader shifts in the American and global economy. Uh, as I said, the Philadelphia is transitioning, despite the reputation as a blue collar city, is transitioning away from that uh, that sort of that, that economic sector. Um, that's that's not who the, what the city is going to be anymore. And so, while there are these fleeting triumphs, the very real reality of of the age of limits is still is still there, and yeah. it is still very much. Um, the challenge. And, you know, there are things Rizzo can do on a local level and there are things he can't. Um, he can't he can't change Supreme Court decisions. He can't, you know, and, and, and things like that. So the things there is always a limit to what Rizzo can do for the people who got him elected. Uh, and when when that is clear, when it when it is clear that you know, maybe he can stop this one public housing project for a little while and mm-hmm. that he can't do forever. And when it's clear he can, he sort of falls back onto what he knows. He falls back to law and order. Mm-hmm. Uh, he falls back to this to, to this cultural conservatism, this this uh, liberal elites are trying to wreck your neighborhood kind of attitude uh, that put, fuels the fire uh, of people who are going through a very difficult economic transition. So it's the, these, these, there are a few victories, but they, they can't, they don't last. And what is, what they're replaced with is, is sometimes resentment, but also um, people who have dug in their heels for so long that, that their politics have changed because of it. Yeah. So I've 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 held off from asking the obvious question <laughs> that's been looming over this book. Um, and surely before you you know you you published this you know very lucky at a fortuitous time. <laughs> I mean, how, how how does President Trump and the Trump movement how does this figure into the story? I, I I'm proud of myself. I didn't make that my first question because I'm sure that is the question you get asked constantly. It is, and uh, so so to, so to be honest, um, I do uh, eventually reference Trump in the book. I didn't want to at first. Uh, I was I was um, doing the a lot of writing during the 2016 campaign, um, and some of the comparisons were obvious. 
and and to be to be fair, I wasn't the first to make them. Um, I had actually a number of people, Philadelphia journalists and other and a couple others, you know, contact me. You know, hey, these guys seem really similar, and 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 I said, yeah, there's there's definitely something there. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, Rizzo and and Trump have as many things different as they do uh, sim- similar. I mean, Rizzo legitimately is this, you know, blue collar up on the streets. Uh, um, you know, beat cop turned politician. Trump is emphatically not up from the streets. Right. Um, but the way they appeal, I, I, the, the way I, the, 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 the biggest similarity between them is, is just the way they appeal to people. Um, and, and, you know, there, there was a lot made after the election about, you know, Trump's appeal to the white working class. And I think uh, that has been complicated a, a great bit. Uh, that, that there was so much more to his victory than than working class, uh, and that it came from a broad spectrum of pre- predominantly white voters. Um, but that's still the the framing matters. Um, the, the frame and 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 as I do in the book, I I sort of adopt a much broader definition of blue collar, uh, and blue collar is sort of the cultural idea rather than the sort of economic class category. Uh, it, during during the campaign. Um, Donald Trump's son at campaign stops, I think in Des Moines and Pittsburgh, referred to his father as a blue collar billionaire. Um, I think it was it uh, somebody somebody repeated the same thing at the uh, Republican National Convention. I think it was was it Jerry Falwell Jr. or it was one of the one of the preachers called him a blue collar billionaire. Uh, I don't I don't that's, that's a it's a very difficult term to parse out there. Uh, but, but if you look at it from the perspective of who Frank Rizzo was, right, uh, Rizzo means business, uh, law and order, uh, and all those things, it's, it's, it's how he appeals. And, and a lot of Trump's appeal during the 2016 election uh, was his combative, unpolished style. That his, you know, what if you, if you, read it once you read it a thousand times people saying the thing they liked about donald trump was that he told it like it is and you know how what i say is how different is that is he's one of us he's saying what we're thinking you know uh, rizzo was the guy who was willing to say the things and and we didn't get into it but it's you know rizzo has a long history of saying really, really bad thing, like off-the-cuff remarks, much in the same way uh, Trump did all throughout the campaign, like sort of things that you thought, you know, I don't want to be diplomatic now I say this, but things that you almost assume would tank a normal candidate when you say or get caught saying things just didn't stick. And that's that was the same thing for Rizzo, you know, because the people who, the people who, who, voted for people who, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too far with this and I don't want to make it, you know, a sense of like a cult of personality sort of thing, but the people who are loyal, you see the the sort of loyalty that Rizzo commanded and the sort of loyalty that Trump commands that almost nothing they can do can, can challenge this perception because he's out there for us. And then if you even look at, at some of the campaign, you know, um, Trump really did. I mean, he was he was a throwback. Trump started talking about law and order during in in 2016, um, talking about 
you know, uh, cities like, like, and to go back to what you were saying is that, you know, the cities in the sixties and seventies being almost a foreign place, he was talking about the cities, like the sixties and seventies. And like, that's cities have been going, I mean, don't get me wrong. 2016 was what there was a peak in, in crime in 2016. That is true. Um, but overall, crime levels are down and cities are almost universally safer than they were uh, 30 or 40 years ago. But he talked about them like, you know, lawless hellscapes, sort of bringing back that that sense of urban crisis that Rizzo capitalized on. Um, More than anything, though, was there it was the it was the populist appeal, the I'm doing this for you. Uh, that that you know if you look the rhetoric that both of them employ is like I don't even really want to be doing this, but no one else can. You know, and that's that's that is quintessential populism. That I'm it's self-sacrificing for me to even do this, and you know, obviously that's not really true, but it's the, the, that sort of thing that really um, seemed to um, pick up momentum, uh, and you know. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like I said, there there are things that are so much different between Trump and Rizzo that, that as many things separate them uh, as as make them similar. But the way they communicate, uh, the way uh, they command loyalty, the way and the way people look at them as the solution to broader problems. I think, and the way they, they, that even when they don't, can't really deliver on those solutions, they still deliver vicarious triumphs. You know, you, the, the same way, uh, you know, Rizzo's tough talk, and especially when it came, his tough talk to about liberals in the 1970s, wasn't necessarily gaining anything materially for the people who, you know, were concerned about their material well-being. The same way a lot of now, a lot of Trump's t- tough talk about whether it be the media, whether it be, uh, you know, the Democrats or, or who isn't necessarily delivering anything except somebody is has a platform um, to take down these unlike deletes. You know, these, these yeah, I mean, be, yeah, uh, people often liberals will forget, uh, you know, Voters are not rational actors and put out put machines and tangible stuff, you know, emotional, you know, th- these things greatly matter. Um, now, we Tim, we've taken up a lot of your time. So we're going to move to our traditional last question. And I know um, this book is is just coming out, I believe, in September. Is that correct? Yes. Um, but well, what's your next project? What, what are you thinking? So, about? so I've got I haven't. I'm, I, uh, my my goal for this uh, summer was actually to nail down what my next project is definitively going to be, and instead uh, I stand hit here today with three, <laughs> and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like I'm I'm pursuing all three in in uh, just about equal measure, and I I will determine uh, which is uh, most viable when when that becomes clear to me. Um, Two are are more, at least more generally related to the the first project. I'm I'm interested in and and I've been thinking a lot about sort of 
um, historicizing and, and, and thinking about the sort of political history of the term uh, de facto segregation. Uh, it is a uh, it is a it is a term that that in in recent historical scholarship has been uh, sort of dismissed as you know as as sort of the the, the, the false dichotomy between de jure and de facto segregation and I and I agree with that but that but nevertheless for about fifty years it it had a lot of power you know and and I think uh, there's there and there has been some effort um, but I think at some level a broader idea of how how the political usage of that term changed from the the 50s into you know through the era of civil rights and especially how it made people view um, segregated eras uh, in 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 the urban north, which is where you know I'm an urban historian. I'm cons- I'm concerned about the segregation in the north um, primarily, and so it's, it's sort of like an urban almost political intellectual approach to that topic. Um, I have um, very very uh, long-term plans. Uh, this is probably the, the furthest on the back burner, but long-term plans for a broader study of the American far right. Um, it was a, uh, I, I think I mentioned very briefly that I had a different topic in mind before this became my dissertation. The, that was concerning uh, far-right extremism. And, I, and I, I, I backed away from it partially because I didn't think anyone would care. <laughs> uh, I miss the, I, I miss those days, but that, you know the, that resurgence has got me really thinking about it, and a lot of conversations I've been having with other scholars uh, about uh, conservatism, about the far right, has, has let me think that we we really need a a more broader uh, and deeper understanding of some of those politics, going back a lot further. Uh, I was asked from a from, by a friend uh, to to write a little something. Um, uh, after Trump won. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about since I wrote it is that we really haven't come to grips with some of the, I, I, one of the great things that a lot of this new literature and conservatism has done has sort of, um, you know, torn down a lot of the, uh, the stereotypes and, and the, and the, the broad brushes. Um, but I think it's awesome caused us to sort of um, maybe dismiss some of the really, really unsavory sides of the rise of conservatism. And, and I think a, a broader approach to that.